Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Volume. We're back with another week of football, and DraftKings Sportsbook is keeping us in on the NFL action with great offers every single game day. New customers can bet $5 and get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Throw five down on any of this week's epic matchups and walk away an instant winner. And DraftKings isn't stopping there. All customers can take advantage of two new offers every single game day this September. Football's more fun when you're in on the action. So download the app now and sign up with code HOOPS. New customers can bet just $5 to get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on the DraftKings Sportsbook app, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, with code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888 789-7777 789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. Licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles in Louisiana. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. See sportsbook.draftkings.com football terms for eligibility. Terms and responsible gambling resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Thursday, everybody. I hope all of you guys are having a great week so far. We are live on AMP, so if you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast feeds, don't forget that AMP is the very first place that you can get these shows. We're continuing our power rankings today, covering the Cleveland Cavaliers with a full season preview. And then I've got two mailbag questions, and then I want to kind of follow up on my Damian Lillard take from the other day. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT. Don't forget about our podcast feed under Hoops Tonight. And I need mailbag questions, so drop those in the YouTube comments for us to hit at the end of our shows. All right, let's talk some basketball. So really quick, before I go up front, I don't know how this happened, um, but they got switched. 
I had the Knicks at 14 and the Cavs at 13. That should be reversed. I intended for the Knicks to be above the Cavs. So consider the Cavs at 14th on my list and consider the Knicks at 13. But I could care less about the order for all intents and purposes. I'd rather just dive into the teams and talk about some basketball. So let's do that today. So obviously the Cavs had a lot of roster turnover this summer, specifically designed to address their biggest roster weakness, which was shooting. But I want to take a second to differentiate between what was the biggest weakness on paper or in process during the regular season versus why they lost to the Knicks. Because I think they're very different. And I think that if you move only to address that big picture flaw and weakness, you could overlook the real reason why they were losing. And those reasons are reasons that are not going to go away just because you brought in some guys that can knock down some threes. Because here's the thing, shooting is definitely their biggest weakness in the big, in the big picture, but that's not why they lost to the Knicks. In fact, they made 37% of their catch-and-shoot threes in that series. That's perfectly fine. There were nine playoff teams, nine of the 16 teams that shot worse in their spot-up situations. The Cavs converted spot-up possessions in the Knicks series at 1.2 points per possession. That's not just good, that's off the charts good. That was the second best mark out of any of the 16 playoff teams last year. So hitting open guys and them not being able to make shots, that's not why you lost to the Knicks. Bringing in Max Struess and Georges Niang as guys that can make threes is not going to fix that problem. They lost this series in five games. Three of the four losses didn't even involve a clutch situation. I mean, they couldn't even get it within five points with five minutes left. They got smacked. So why? Why did they get smacked? That's the important thing that needs to be diagnosed here. I had three main reasons that I put down, and I talked about all three of these during the series, but I actually went back and watched a bunch of the series this morning, and they stood out to me again. Now, reason number one, by far the biggest reason why the Knicks kicked the Cavs' ass last year, and I bet you Cavs fans can probably guess this, their bigs, Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, got their ass kicked. Mitchell Robinson absolutely obliterated them on the glass. He had 29 offensive rebounds in five games. To give you an idea, Evan Mobley and Jared Allen combined between the two of them to get 30 offensive rebounds. So Mitchell Robinson almost had as many offensive rebounds by himself. And then as I predicted before the series, Evan Mobley struggled a little bit with the physicality of Julius Randle because he's just so much bigger than him that he can dislodge him when he beats him to spots. Isaiah Hartenstein killed him on the glass too. As a team, the Knicks had 75 offensive rebounds in five games. That's unheard of. That is unbelievably good. But here's the problem. We're just talking about the glass here. It actually got worse because... The Cavs were an excellent pick-and-roll team in the regular season. As we know, we're going to talk about that a lot today. But as we pointed out, when they kicked it out to shooters in this series, they actually made shots. And, you know, part of the kind of plot line in that series was like, oh, we know the Knicks are going to ignore Isaac Okoro, and they're going to ignore Lamar Stevens, and they're going to force them into taking, you know, a tough shots in pick-and-roll, right? Well, the biggest problem was actually the role men. The um, uh, the Cavs as a team logged 37 roll man possessions in the series, and they converted them into just 18 points. That's 0.49 points per possession. Here's how bad that was. 12 of the 16 playoff teams last year were over a point per possession in roll man possessions. 
Minnesota, Brooklyn, and the Clippers were the only three teams that were below a point, and all three of them were over 0.75 points, so over three quarters of a point. The Cavs were less than a half of a point. Evan Mobley, by himself, had 13 role man possessions that he converted into one point of free throw. He was 0 for 10 from the field. And this is where the actual kind of uh, uh, organization of the team got screwed up. Because what was happening was is Julius Randle's guarding Evan Mobley. You're on a pick and roll with Darius Garland or Donovan Mitchell. Julius Randle is showing high to stop the pull-up jump shot. And so the slip is wide open. And they're throwing that pass over the top to Evan Mobley, who's catching the ball wide open in the middle of the floor. And every single time, you've got Jared Allen standing there in the dunker spot ready to go up. Mitchell Robinson would just hang back and kind of bait Evan Mobley into coming into him. And then as he would jump, he would time it perfectly, meet him up top, and force him into a tough floater over the top, which he literally could not make. He too frequently missed that lob pass to Jared Allen or couldn't figure out a way to bait Mitchell Robinson into committing so that he could make that pass. And then when they would dig down from the weak side, too often he missed the kickout pass. So the math from there is pretty simple. You you can put it together. So if you're allowing the other team to show high on ball screens – but not punishing them on the short roll, like literally not ever scoring in the short roll, then you're going to get killed in pick and roll offensively, right? Like you're you're going to take what was a, one of the most effective pick and roll offenses in the league in the regular season, and it's going to completely fall apart the way it did against the Knicks. And so that was the first big reason, and by far the biggest reason why they lost that series. Their bigs got their ass kicked on the offensive glass, and their bigs couldn't do enough to be a threat and pick and roll in the dunker spot and as a role man. So that's reason number one. The other two reasons came down to the guards. Both Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell, I thought, missed too many of those kickout opportunities. Donovan Mitchell in particular had a rough series in this regard when I was watching the tape this morning. It's crazy how many reads he missed. Not just like skip passes to shooters, but like he straight up missed Jared Allen for dunks a bunch of times in that series underneath the basket and like tried to force something up over Mitchell Robinson that he would miss. And, you know, again, like we talked about, they had 1.2 points per possession in spot-up situations. That's great, but they didn't get as many of those possessions as they should have because the reads weren't being made. And part of that's frustration. I really think that it's a common thing that basketball players will do. Uh, really, really good basketball players, when they're frustrated by something that's happening around them that's out of their control, they'll respond by forcing the issue. And both of them took a lot of really tough shots that they probably didn't need to take over the course of that series. And so offensive process was kind of the second reason. And then the third reason was the defensive entry points. And a lot of people are going to want to say Chetty Osman, and don't get me wrong, Chetty Osman was an issue. Uh, Jalen Brunson picked on him relentlessly in the whatever it was. You think he played like 19 minutes a game in that series. But it wasn't just him. The uh, The reality is, is that every single time – Uh, a Cleveland Cavalier ball handler looked up and saw Darius Garland on them, their eyes lit up. It'd be like, you know, Jalen Brunson seeing that he's got Darius Garland on him and immediately taking him to work. Or, you know, R.J. Barrett would catch on the the left wing or in the left corner and be like, oh shit, Darius Garland's on me. Hard rip through to the left, easy layup. Like that, that's an entry point that's going to be a problem when you have two small guards, one of which is bad defensively and the other is average at best. It's kind of a roster alignment issue. And so, again, like it's important to differentiate between what their big picture issues were in the regular season and why they lost to the Knicks. The reason why they lost to the Knicks had very little to do with their role players. It's easy to focus on role players because it allows you to avoid big picture conversations. 
right? And let's look at this Cavs offseason. They went and got a bunch of shooting, right? It's clear that they view the role players as the reason why things went the way they did. And that is the easier solution. Because it's much harder to sit down as a front office and be like, hey, do you know why Evan Mobley had to contend with Mitchell Robinson every single time he caught on the short roll? Oh, we're running a too big offense in 2023. And for the record, they have to right now, right? Because Jared Allen is your only guy that can play starting center because Evan Mobley right now is a little too thin and not quite ready for that type of physical responsibility, right? And Evan Mobley is a is a, a, a limited offensive player at this point. Let's just put it straight up. So for the record, Evan Mobley was the very worst spot-up player in the entire NBA last year. There were 182 players who attempted at least 150 spot-up possessions last year. Evan Mobley scored 0.61 points per possession in those situations, which was dead last in that group. So at a low volume limit, 150 reps, almost half the league had that many, 182 players. He was dead last. So you can't put him in the corner and have Jared Allen run screens because you don't have to guard him out there. And so as a result, you have to run this janky system or Evan Mobley setting the ball screens and he rolls hard to the rim and Jared Allen is waiting in the dunker spot and you hope Evan Mobley can make plays. Here's the problem. In the regular season, that works pretty well, but you run into a good playoff defense. And here's the thing. The Knicks were not even that good of a defense. I think they were 19th in defensive rating last year. Now it's about matchups because the Cavs are not a are typically not a good spot up team, even though they were in that series. And so Tom Thibodeau was allowed to and able to kind of pack the paint in a certain way. And yeah, maybe there's a matchup they could have caught somewhere along the way where they would have fared better in pick and roll. But I would argue if your intention is to get out of the Eastern Conference and and have a chance to win the championship, you're not ever going to do that when you've got two guys on the floor that are non-threats offensively. And I'm, again, I'm a huge believer in Evan Mobley in the long run. I'm not trying to sit here and be super critical of Evan Mobley. He's just, he just finished his second season as a pro. But, like, now you're starting to see some of the imbalances, right? Because you have this system built around two small guards and two bigs. That's the other, like, that's another big picture question that you'd have to have. Are you going to sit down in the front office and be like, is there, a, 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 is it a good idea to have, our two best shot creators, the two guys we lean on most offensively that we have to play together a lot, be two small guards, one of which is a bad defender and the other is average at best and most of the time bad. Like that's a that's that's a big that's a tough conversation. Because how do those conversations end? Those conversations end with like if we give Evan Mobley the center position, we're not going to be as good for a while as Evan Mobley learns how to play center in the NBA and has to bulk up, right? If we if we address the guard issue, then that means we have to trade one of them. And, like, that's a tough conversation to have. And so what ends up happening is instead it's like, hey, well, let's blame the role players. Let's blame Chetty Osman and Isaac Okoro, right? And, and, and so then you go out and you get Max Struess and Georges Niang and you run it back, but what's going to end up happening is you're going to be in the exact same predicament this summer or this, this, this coming summer when you get to April, May, June, when you have the exact same roster imbalances. Like ideally in the modern NBA, 
you want to have your roster dispersed among the three core star archetypes, right? Like you want some sort of shot-creating guard that can run pick and roll and pick defenses apart. You want some sort of like power playmaking forward. And then you want a defensive anchor at the center position. And then slotted between those three spots, you want versatile, like a, a versatile a guard and a versatile forward that can defend and can shoot and play off the ball. That's ideally how you want to orient a team. The only teams that get away with not following that structure are teams that have all-time great offensive unicorns. Like, yeah, if you've got Steph Curry or Nikola Jokic, you might be able to get away with a little bit of a funky lineup, right? Like, Jokic is the first... Uh, the Denver Nuggets are the first team to win the title without a dominant defensive front court. Yeah, that's true. But they've got Nikola Jokic, the potentially the best offensive player of all time when it's all said and done. Like that's the potential he has. It's like okay, you uh, the Warriors they they won with small ball. Yeah, you're right. But they've got Steph freaking Curry. And, and again, like Donovan Mitchell and, and Darius Garland are really good players. They're not Steph Curry and they're not Nikola Jokic. And so when you run into roster imbalances and you don't have the superhuman offensive production that allows you to kind of like mitigate some of those issues, you're going to run into problems. You don't have, uh, like your, your best athletic forward is Evan Mobley, who right now is several seasons away from being ready offensively to be a perimeter player. And more than likely in a perfect world, operates as like a Kevin Garnett-esque center for you, ideally, in the long run, right? So that means you need you need a forward. Who's your dynamic forward? You don't have one. So you're running two bigs and two small guards, and yeah, you can... J.B. Bickerstaff has done an amazing job getting these dudes to play hard. We're going to talk about their defense in a little bit. They did a lot of things really well defensively last year. They were the best defense in the league. You can... Fake it in the regular season a certain amount. That's been a big theme on this show. We just talked about it in the Knicks show yesterday. Like, yeah, you you can get away with a lot in the regular season. How many times are we going to see a Cavs, a Knicks, or not, excuse me, Cavs, a Kings, or a Memphis Grizzlies team win a shit ton of regular season games and then lose to a middle-of-the-pack veteran team? Like, we've seen this too many times. You can't be swayed by regular season results. Now, unless you have a different end game in mind. If your goal is to win 50 regular season games every year and just be interesting while you lose in the first or second round, then by all means, this is the way to go. But if that's the case, then like, why did you trade for Donovan Mitchell then? Because he's on a different timeline. He's a little bit older, right? Evan Mobley's, by the time Evan Mobley enters his prime, Donovan Mitchell could be 30. And not be the same athlete that he is now. So, like, that's where I, I struggle to understand, like, the, the kind of, like, big picture direction that this is going. The big picture discussions are, are we oriented properly? And the answer to that is probably no. But those conversations are really hard to have for Kobe Altman in that front office. And so, instead, they target off-ball players, which they did. And so, again, for the purpose of this preview... We're going to focus on what they are and what they're going to be. But I do think it's important to acknowledge that they did not lose because of their role players. They lost because the Mitchell Garland, Allen, Mobley quad 
whatever you want to call it, that foursome is misaligned on the same basketball team. You've got two dominant pick-and-roll players playing the hardest brand of pick-and-roll you could possibly play, which is the rim protector sitting right under the rim and doesn't even have to play drop coverage. Like, like that's, that, that's just a really difficult way to play basketball. And they've signed up for this for the immediate future. All right, so a quick little offseason recap. They lost Andy Green, Robin Lopez, Raul Neto, Chetty Osmond, Lamar Stevens, and Dylan Windler. Again, very, lots of roster turnover this year. Um, they added shooting. Again, they were 20th in the regular season in spot-up efficiency last year. It was a significant problem during the regular season. They went out and got several good shooters. Max Struess, he was a light lights-out spot-up guy last year, 1.18 points per possession on 350 reps. Um, remember that 182-player spot-up list that I said that Evan Mobley was dead last on? Max was 31st on that list, so much higher on that list. And if you trim it down to the high-volume guys, there were 16 players in the league who got at least 200, excuse me, at least 350 spot-up looks. Max was second on that list. So among the high, high-volume spot-up guys, there were 16 of them. He finished second. That's significant. Um, and I think he's a really good fit defensively. He's six foot five, 215 pounds. He's got good size. He competes, and he'll help you with the dirty work. George Snee, even more efficient in spot-up situations than Max Struess, 1.20 points per possession. He shot 62% in effective field goal percentage on catch-and-shoot jumpers, 71% when he's unguarded. He's one of the few, like, cannot-leave-him-open guys that we have in the league. And what I really like about that, too, is both of those shooters kind of play different positions. Those are, you know, Niang kind of slots as a four next to a rim-protecting five, and uh, Max Struess kind of ideally... Uh, operates as a two or a three, right? And so that kind of makes sense in terms of the alignment. And now the Cavs are going to be able to throw out lineups where they have like, you know, Darius Garland and Karis LeVert with Max Strews, Georges Niang, and and Jared Allen. Like they're going to have some flexibility to run lineups like that, which they did not last year because they simply did not have the shooting. And that's where it gets exciting because now you're talking about legitimately running spread pick and roll with three great shooters off the ball that you can't leave open so that Darius Garland has the room to really work downhill. Even when they ran one big lineups last year, they just didn't have the shooting to properly really generate the spacing lanes that they needed. Um, they also drafted Emily Bates, uh, Bates went in the second round and so kind of went under the radar, but he played really well at Summer League. Very, very good shooter. Um, he's got a lot of other limitations. He's super, super thin. Um, uh, obviously he's got to learn how to play off the ball. He does most of his work on the ball, but in the long run, I think he's an interesting option as somebody who could potentially be that kind of swing forward. If he learns how to do the dirty work and learns how to play off the ball, I don't think he's going to play much this year, but he's an interesting pickup. They also added Damian Jones, who's a decent backup center. I covered him with the Lakers, nothing exceptional there, but he's a fine backup option. Tristan Thompson, another backup big. He played very sparingly for the Lakers at the end of the Nuggets series and had some moments, but again, just a backup big. Um, Ty Jerome, a backup ball handler from the Golden State Warriors last year. I actually really like this pickup. Uh, he ran 169 pick and rolls last year, leading to 186 points. That was in the 88th percentile. He's got a really nice pull-up three-point shot and a really nice floater. He's got uh, uh, he made 52% of his floaters last year. Nice high arc on it. He can get it over rim protectors. I actually think he makes a lot of sense as a backup shot creator on this particular team. I'm actually shocked he didn't play more than he did for the Warriors. Um, but again, they were kind of guard heavy. But he had some moments when Steph was out with injury for the Warriors. I actually like that pickup a lot. And I think Cavs fans are going to like him. So again, if we picked the direction that they could go, which is fundamentally alter the structure of the team or fix the role player shooting issue, 
accepting that we chose to fix the role player shooting issue, they did a good job. They did a good job addressing that issue. I thought they picked up some good shooting at good value. I, I liked that summer uh, for the Cavs from that standpoint. Depth chart at guard, Darius Garland, Donovan Mitchell, Karis LeVert, and Ty Jerome. At forward, Evan Mobley, Max Struess, I'm kind of considering him forward here, although he could be technically considered a guard. Isaac Okoro, Georges Niang, Dean Wade, and Emony Bates. Um, I actually think Emony Bates has a decent chance to make the opening day roster. We'll see. The bigs, Jared Allen, Damian Jones, and Tristan Thompson, and obviously Evan Mobley is capable of playing some backup big as well. On offense, this is a pick-and-roll team. The vast majority of Cavs' offensive possessions will involve a ball screen. They ran 40 pick-and-rolls per game last year, which was the sixth most in the NBA. They scored 1.04 points per possession in a pick-and-roll last year, which was seventh most in the NBA. Now, you got to remember, that's with all of those misalignment issues that I was talking about, which is why I've been pushing so much for this, because just imagine a universe where Donovan Mitchell is able to run you know, this many pick and rolls in true four out one in spacing with a good role, man. Like it could be really dynamic if that were to happen. Um, the Cavs do a much better job than most teams at complicating their pick and roll. And remember, we talked about this yesterday, but complications are just like actions you run to get into a pick and roll or actions that you run during pick and roll to keep things busy, right? So it occupies defenders and makes the point of attack job harder. So they'll run like a dribble handoff flowing into a pick and roll. So like a a pistol action, for instance, again, making those two defensive guards either navigate a switch or fight through a screen before they flow into the pick and roll. They'll do like, they'll run Karis LeVert off of a couple of wide pin downs, like a double wide screen. And then he'll come up and then immediately flow into a pick and roll off of the second screener, right? Or, um, Darius Garland's really good at like this give and go thing where he'll kind of dribble up the left side of the floor and he'll, the Jared Allen or Evan Mobley will come up to set the screen. And instead of like dribbling into it, he'll like look over to the left and like throw a, a high post entry and then just sprint off like a dribble handoff. Then as soon as he gets a dribble handoff, he'll rip back to the left and uh, Evan Mobley will reverse the screen and he'll come off towards the left side. Like they do a nice job of making it so it's not just stagnant dribble the ball up the floor and run pick and roll type of offense. And I, I credit JB Bickerstaff for that. And I really think it's one of the biggest areas for opportunity in offense around the NBA is like, we've almost become a little bit too brute force, especially during the regular season. And I'd like to see more teams do that, but the Cavs do a really nice job. Donovan Mitchell was awesome in pick and roll last year. 1.10 points per possession. Remember our high volume pick and roll list. There were 15 players in the league who ran at least a thousand. Donovan Mitchell came in third on that list. So he's one of the best. Darius Garland was a level below that 1.03 points per possession. He was 11th in our high volume pick and roll list. Karis LeVert 1.01 points per possession on 471 reps. It's basically average. Um, attacking in ISO, they were, uh, Darius Garland had a rough year, 0.87 points per possession, but both Donovan Mitchell and Karis LeVert were good, well over a point per possession. They have no post-up attack. They scored just 320 points out of the post all season. That was 25th in the NBA, and they were 29th in efficiency out of the post. But the, re- the real area for opportunity here is trying to avoid the two big spacing issues as much as possible. Like, yeah, you were eighth in offensive rating last year, and it's easy to be like, oh, we're good on offense. But you were 20th in clutch offensive rating. So when the game really slowed down at the end of games, you couldn't score relative to your peers. And then you got to the postseason, you ran into a league average defense and couldn't score. So I, I think it's important to identify 
that 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 ceiling there that needs to be addressed. And I think I think a couple ways you can address it in the short term is just staggering Mobley and Allen more, like cutting uh, Jared Allen's minutes a little bit and running more Evan Mobley at the five. I think George's kneeing slots really nicely as a four next to him. And so you could find more opportunities for one big lineups to make things easier. Or, you know, here's the thing, like you can pay the price with some regular season struggles by giving Mobley more reps at the five, knowing he's not going to do great at it. And maybe you pay the price in the regular season, but over the course of the season, he improves at it. And you have that as a look when you get to the postseason. But really, I don't think they're going to be able to reach their ultimate offensive potential until they reorient themselves. On defense, they were the best defense in the league last year. They were the only team in the NBA to allow fewer than 110 points per possessions. Uh, points per 100 possessions, excuse me. They were the sixth best paint defense and the fifth best three-point defense. They allowed just 11.6 made threes per game. So one of the few teams in the league that did a really nice job of taking away the two most efficient shots in the game, which is the rim and the three-point line. So credit to J.B. Bickerstaff and his staff for building a really good modern defense. I don't think it's a coincidence that they were the best defense in the league as a result. Uh, one weakness in their defense is they were 20th in rebounding. So not a big shock to see why New York caused them so many problems there. Uh, most of that's just a couple things. Two small guards, you're going to struggle to secure long rebounds with two small guards. And then Evan Mobley just being a little thin, something that he'll get better at in the long run. And then they do have entry points, like we talked about in the postseason. Again, it's easy to talk about Chetty Osman, but it wasn't just Chetty Osman. And the problem is, their best point of attack defender last year was Isaac Okoro. But he was a bad spot-up player, only 0.97 points per possession. And so, as a result, when they got to the postseason, they only played him 15 minutes a game. And so they had to play a lot more Chetty Osman, and he did get attacked a lot. But again, it's not just him. It's also it's also uh, the Darius Garland issue. Donovan Mitchell doesn't so much get picked on because he's a great athlete, but he does struggle um, just in, in terms of his overall defensive awareness. Uh, I do think Max Struess is going to help here, though. I think I think Max Struess is a better combination of like offensive threat and defensive capable point of attack defender. Like I, I think that he's a better combination of those two things than really anybody who played on the wing last year for the Cavs. And so I think Max Struess is really going to help them there. But it, it it's still going to be a fundamental issue with uh, uh, the ability to attack their guards when they get to the postseason. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. 
Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So again, like ac- accepting the simple fact that the Cavs front office probably will not move off of the Garland, Mitchell, Mobley, Allen core for at least one more season, if not more. That leaves us with two harsh truths about the Cavs defense. Like Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell have to find a way to hold up defensively. And Evan Mobley and uh, Jared Allen have to find a way to hold up on the glass. They're just going to have to if they're going to have any chance to reach their ultimate potential. For this season, I expect the Cavs to finish around the 4-5 or five spot again and to lose in the first round unless they catch a really favorable matchup. I just I really think this team has some defense or some playoff flaws that are going to be difficult to overcome in the short term. All right, uh, before we get out of here, I've got uh, I want to talk about the Damian Lillard situation for just a second and then we'll uh, take two mailbag questions. So, I've got a lot of backlash today over my Damian Lillard position. On social media. And I I wanted to address two counterpoints that I've heard that I don't understand. So one of the most common refrains I'll hear when I've had this position that I've taken is people will say things like, he signed a contract. Like, all they owe him is the money that's in the contract. And I think there's a couple things that we got to separate there. First of all, like, this is not not an employer type of situation where – Um, like you just like, this is a salary that you collect and like the company is choosing to pay you that this is a revenue share. The league generates a certain amount of revenue and the players get half of it. So like, though, I don't look at it as like Portland gave Dame money. Dame got his share of the revenue. Portland just happens to be the vehicle with which he's enjoying that revenue. I don't think I don't think Portland should get bonus points for paying Damian Lillard max contracts when all 30 NBA teams would pay him max contracts. Like, I I don't understand that philosophy. Also, the second side of that is like people will say things like, he signed a contract. If he wanted to leave, why doesn't he just not sign the contract, become a free agent, and then go sign wherever he wants? And that sounds great on the surface, right? That sounds super logical, but it's not that simple. Because Dame wants to leave because he wants an opportunity to contend for a championship. How often does a championship team have max cap space? A team that can win a championship. Almost never. One of the few times it happened recently was in 2016, and it literally generated the greatest team ever assembled. Who were the teams with cap space this summer? The San Antonio Spurs and the Houston Rockets. So yeah, Dame should have gotten out of his contract so he can sign with one of the worst teams in the league? 
cap space is not very valuable anymore because stars don't sign in free agency through that method. So as a result, if Dame wants to, at this phase in his career, go to Miami, this is the only way. If you are an NBA star and you want to go play for one of the 10 best teams in the league, the only way you can do it is sign a long-term deal with your team and request a trade. So, so again, it sounds great to be like, don't sign the deal. You could be a free agent. You signed up for this. You took away your own freedom. No. He just made a decision based on the way the league works. He wanted to go to Miami. His only way to get there was to stay with Portland and request a trade. Like, let's not, like, uh, there are takes that I appreciate and I understand. But, like, that one I really struggle with. I I don't get it. Like, every star that has changed teams over the last five years, it's been through, it's been through trades. Like, that's just how it's done these days. Uh, I, I wish I had a, I wish, I mean, we can argue about the system all we want, but this is what the system is. The second thing I don't understand is when they say they owe it to the fans. And like, again, I, I'm not trying to 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 uh, to shit on Portland fans here. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to point out the dichotomy, or the reality of the situation, I should say. There is a three-way relationship here. It's not just the, I should say it's a four-way relationship. There's the the revenue is being split between the players and the and the owners, right? But the actual dynamic, the living organism that is the NBA, has four factions, and arguably more, but four main factions. You've got the organizations, and you've got the players, but you also have the fans and the media, and all four are incredibly important. The media is responsible for marketing the league. It's what makes the league digestible. Like the, 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 these these media companies from the big guys at ESPN to the smaller media companies like The Volume to the individual team-specific podcast out there, all of the, all down the line to the beat writers to 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 the former players that just talk big picture stuff with their buddies in the it, on a couch somewhere. All of that helps market the league, which helps everybody. It helps the owners make money. It helps the players make money. It helps members of the media make money. That's that, right? Then there's the fans. And their trade-off is simple. They get a entertainment product and they get to root for their team and we market to them, right? The the I shouldn't say we, but the advertisers do, right? So like that's the trade-off, right? It's like you get to see this game, but you have to watch these ads, right? Or if you want to watch your favorite team on League Pass, you've got to pay the NBA, right? The your your League Pass subscription. But it's all intricately related. So like yeah like like does Portland owe it to the fans to do what's best for the franchise? Yes. But they also owe something to Dame. You can pretend that this is just a business relationship and oh you only have to fulfill the terms of your contract. That's not how it works. Any of you guys who listen to this show that run your own business in some way shape or form, whether you run a small business in town, whether you got a side hustle, whether you sell real estate, whether uh, whether you're an Uber driver, I don't care what it is you do. If you have a 1099 and you and you run your own kind of personal business, how you treat people matters. You can pretend it doesn't matter, but it does. And if you take a guy who devoted 11 years of his career there, probably a few years more than he should have, what like like you do have to to uh, to do right by him. And if you do wrong by him, that will come back to bite you. I firmly believe that. And so you've got to appease all parties involved. 
Yes, Portland owes it to their fans, but they also owe it to their players to take care of them. And the other side of that is I'd be like, where was that sense of obligation from Portland fans to do what's best for the team when the Portland front office was screwing off and wasting the Dame era? Like, that, 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 that doesn't make any sense to me. The, the one real opinion that I understand, the, the one that I've seen that, like, I'm like, okay, I see where you're coming from, is when people say, hey, Dame should have given them, like, three teams instead of one team. So at least they could pit them against each other and get a better offer. Again, that makes sense in a vacuum, and I do respect that opinion. But even then I'd point out, like, does anybody really have three that they want or is it one that they want? Like, if I told you, you guys you had to, you know, if, you, if you're a hooper and you, had to, you wanted to get a new pair of basketball shoes and you're a huge believer in the Kobe's and you can get a Kobe or you can get the PG's or you can get the, the Kyrie's, like and yeah, those are your top three. But like, which one are you getting if you if you if you have your own choice? You're gonna take the Kobe's, right? If you're a Kobe fan, or if you like the Kobe shoes better. Like, it, it sounds fancy in theory to be like, oh yeah, here's my list of three teams. But like, by the way, I want Miami. Like, sure, I'll go to Toronto, OKC, or Miami. Cool. But you don't think him and his agent are still gonna tell the Heat that they want he wants to go there first? You don't think Dame's going to let those other teams know? Like, yeah, by the way, I prefer Miami. Like, again, my criticism of Damian Lillard is just the overall way he's handled it. I think him and his agent have been way too aggressive behind the scenes. We get it, bro. You want to go to Miami. That's been clear since you made the trade request. No one is is no one is not clear on what your intentions are. You want to go to Miami. The way you've behaved behind the scenes, it, it, it's made you look bad. There's no doubt. But fundamentally here, I've got an organization – that a player has been remarkably loyal to. Way more loyal than most stars have in this era. Most stars in this era would have gotten to year six or seven in Portland and been like, actually, this isn't really working out for me. I would like to go somewhere else. We've seen that time and time again. Instead, Dame said, no, I will try to make this work with you again. I will try to make this work with you again. He gave them much more margin for error than they deserved. I think they should do right by him. But, like, again, like, he signed a contract. He gets half the revenue. That's how it works. And the only way you can go anywhere in free agency these days in terms of a good team is via trade. So, like, saying that a player requesting a trade is dishonoring a contract is total bullshit. Because you have – free agency is not free agency anymore. Free agency is I get to pick from one of, like – Maybe, maybe uh, if I'm lucky in a good summer, a half dozen teams that have available available cap space, and they probably all suck. So, like, don't say he should have gone to free agency when free agency doesn't exist anymore. That's dishonest. I, I, I but again, I, I, I'm just ready for this to be over. I thankfully I have the Heat pretty high on my list anyway, so we'll get to them, and hopefully by the time we get there, Dame's already there. Because you know what I want to do? I want to talk about basketball. And I want to get back to talking about how Damian Lillard with Bam Adebayo is a super interesting duo. And what Eric Spolstra can do to bring the best out of him offense or defensively, right? Like, that's the kind of stuff that I want to talk about. But the saga needs to end. And it's dragging out because Portland's concerned with getting what's absolutely best for them instead of acknowledging the realities of their relationship with Damian Lillard over a decade. All right, two mailbag questions. First one is from Jacob. 
If the Suns' elite jump shooting continued and they somehow beat Denver, who would you have taken in a Suns-Lakers Western Conference Finals and why? The answer to this is pretty simple. Are we, are we accepting that that elite jump shooting continues into the next round? Because, yeah, if Devin Booker makes 70% of his pull-up jump shots, they're beating everybody, including the Lakers. But the reality is, is like they do rely a lot on pull-up jump shooting. And they didn't have a single player that could actually physically hang with LeBron. And uh, Anthony Davis has kicked DeAndre Ayton's ass all over the place forever, right? And so as I, as I look at that, if they played like the Suns did for the most part, I think the Lakers win the series. But yeah, in the world where the Suns continue to shoot the lights out, I would have picked the Suns to win that series. Certainly would have been a lot closer. Um, I, I certainly think the Suns would have had a very good chance to beat the Lakers, but I would have picked the Lakers. Um, last mailbag question. Been watching your podcast since the 2022 season and really enjoy the insight you bring. My question is, do you believe you could ever be a GM or a coach at the NBA level? And if not, what qualifications do you think one needs to get such a position? So first of all, like, uh, it's in terms of qualifications, coaching is a really interesting thing. Cause I remember when I first got out of, when I first got done playing, I wanted to coach and for the record, like I love what I do right now. But the one thing that I would stop doing this for is to coach. And only in the NBA because I'm not interested in doing it at the college level because I don't want to recruit. But the main reason why is because I miss the locker room. Like, I miss the camaraderie. I miss the team goal. Um, Like, I get a lot of that with the volume. Like, the volume has grown so much since I've been here. And we've added all these big names. We added Shannon Sharp the other day. That's awesome, right? Like, we've added some big-name NFL guys. We added Daniel Cormier, who's one of the biggest UFC media members in the world. Um, We have a huge announcement for an NBA uh, guy that we have a partnership with that's coming next week that I'm excited for you guys to hear about. Like, I've enjoyed the growth of the volume, and I'm stoked about that. And But, like, at the end of the day, this is kind of a solo deal, right? Like, I work by myself. I've... my producer and uh, uh, some other producers behind the scene that, that I work with. But like in terms of, of this show, like it's, it's not a, it's not very much of like the basketball team type of vibe. And also like the nature of this job involves criticism. Like I have to talk about basketball players, not playing particularly well or a coach doing something that I disagree with, which doesn't really sit right with me. Why? Because like, who am I to sit here and criticize Donovan Mitchell, uh, an NBA player, an NBA all-star, an all-NBA player, about his, you know, missing reads and pick and roll. I'm Jason fucking Timpf. I'm, I'm sitting in my guest bedroom in Tucson, Arizona. Like, I, that doesn't sit right with me, right? Like, uh, me talking about Tom Thibodeau overhelping on, on, on drives. Like, Tom Thibodeau is a, is a proven NBA coach. Like, who am I to criticize Tom Thibodeau? But at the end of the day, like, that's the overly rational way of looking at it. The reality is this is sports media and my job is to give my opinion. And I, I do, I put in a lot of work to try to legitimize those opinions, right? Like you guys know that I'd never say anything on the show unless I've seen overwhelming evidence that makes me feel that way about it. Right? So like that, you got to separate the reality of, of what this job is versus what kind of sucks about being an amateur criticizing a professional, right? Like Draymond Green talks about all this a lot with the idea of the new media. And it's an interesting idea, but like I, I, I if I ever get to, to interview an NBA player, which I'm sure it'll eventually happen, this will be one of the questions I ask. Like, what's it like understanding that the media has a job to do 
but being criticized by non-professionals? Like, what's that like? Because I'm curious. Because I know if I was a player, I'd be like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I would be that guy if I was playing in the NBA, right? So, like, it's a super, super interesting dynamic. And that's one of the drawbacks of this job that I don't particularly like. And so what's beautiful about working for a team is, like, it's camaraderie. It's 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 part of that ultimate goal. It's uh, weaponizing my competitiveness towards trying to get the Larry O'Brien trophy versus doing what I do now, which is try to produce a successful NBA show, right? And, like, obviously I'd love to do that. Obviously that would be ideal. I would never have to be critical of another team or coach except for in private, you know, in conversations, right? Like I wouldn't have to publicly uh, uh, come out and criticize a player or coach, right? So, like, I certainly would like to do that. That that would be the dream, right? I'd love to work for an NBA team, specifically in the coaching staff. I'm not as interested in potentially working in a front office, but I'm, I'd be lying if I said I wouldn't consider it. But the reality is, is like the, there's a pathway there. There's a pathway to get to those jobs. And like, I remember when I got out of college, I wanted to coach. And like, when I looked into it, it was like, wait, wait, I need to go be like a graduate assistant at some school and like, just do a bunch of like shitty work for some old dinosaur of a college basketball coach for 15 years, just in hopes that maybe I'll get an assistant gig where I can handle recruiting for some dude forever before I finally maybe get some chance to maybe go coach at some mid-major somewhere. And then at that point I'm already 48 years old and like, like that path just didn't interest me. It's it, basketball coaching is much less of a meritocracy from the standpoint of like grinding up through the ranks than actual play, actually playing the sport is. And in the NBA, it's kind of similar. It's like, it's so many former players that are coaching in different positions. Right. And like, it's like, okay, or you can maybe work in a film room like Eric Spolstra and grind away and maybe get that chance. And it's like, obviously I can't do that. I can't quit my job here at the volume to go work a film room somewhere. Right. So like the reality is, is like the only way it would work is if somebody just offered me a job and that's not going to happen because I'm not qualified, so to speak. I like, obviously I take very much pride in my work. I, I, I hope you guys have seen that in this show, like how hard I work to, to make these, uh, to, to take these positions and to provide this analysis. And like, I am obviously confident in my abilities. I, I believe that I know the game well, and I believe that I can offer something uh, as a basketball mind. But like, that's not something I can write on a resume. Like at the, at the end of the day, like they're gonna take some dude who was, uh, you know, a former player or an assistant at some other organization before they'd consider me, and I'm fine with that, and I'm at peace with that. And like, if I do this for the rest of my life, I'd be thrilled. Like how fortunate am I to get to talk about the game of basketball every day? Like I, I was actually thinking about this. I was talking about it with my wife the other night, but like I, uh, I had a really good day on Monday. I, um, uh, well, I, I, I like played in my men's league on Sunday and then I came home and then I woke up on Monday morning and I trained my high school team and then I came home and I did my video on, I think it was the Minnesota Timberwolves that day. And then like, I did a really good basketball workout, like a really good weight session. And, and, and then I went and did a shooting workout and, and I told my wife, I'm like, I feel so blessed that like I do basketball every day, like I, every day in some form or fashion, I am around the game of basketball 
And I feel very fortunate for that. And so like, I, I don't want to sit there and complain about my position. That's not what I'm doing. I, I love what I do. And if I do this forever, I will be thrilled. But at the end of the day, like I'd be lying to you if I said I, I wouldn't love the opportunity to, to be a part of a team in their journey to trying to win an NBA championship. I, I would, I would, I would love to do that one day. And who knows, maybe if I ever got to do that, maybe I'd still get to do this anyway, at least in some capacity. Um, but very good question. And, and again, like I, I don't think that'll ever happen. And I think there are a lot of people that are more qualified than me that deserve it. Um, and I'm at peace with that, but it is an interesting question. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support. We will be back tomorrow with number 12 and I will see you guys then. And for some more mailbag questions as well. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.